Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber 321. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Later in the program, the U.S. Navy's Principal Cyber Advisor, Chris Cleary. But first, but first, joining us is retired United States Navy Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery, the Senior Director of the Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. He is also a Senior Advisor on the Bipartisan Cyberspace Solarium Commission. Mark, uh, great to have you back aboard. I know you joined us last week. Thanks very much for joining us again. Hey, Vago, thanks a lot for having me. And before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And HII sponsored our coverage of the Navy League Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show earlier this week uh, outside Washington, D.C. And Bell is sponsoring our coverage of the Army Aviation Association of America's Conference and Trade Show in Nashville, Tennessee. And check out our Cavus Ships podcast. Uh, which has been covering Navy League on a daily basis. Co-hosts Chris Cervello and Chris Cavus take a deep dive into the show each week. Uh, so let's discuss uh, this uh, story in the New York Times, quoting Merrick Garland, the Attorney General of the United States, uh, that the United States has mounted an operation, a worldwide operation, to clean up as much malware as possible uh, from uh, critical uh, networks. We have been talking for some months uh, about an expectation that, look, there could be a cyber exchange, shields up was the message that went out, uh, not just from the FBI, uh, uh, the NSA, Cybercom, but also uh, the White House and uh, Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency. From, from your standpoint, what does this mean, right? How positive is it that we're doing this? Because we suspected the United States was defending forward uh, aggressively. Uh, but also, is it problematic to make a disclosure like this uh, at this time? Well, so first what I'll say is it, it's good for us um, to defend forward and to use both military and non-military tools to make ourselves you know, more secure. And that's what uh, the attorney general is referring to is that uh, you know, the F, principally the FBI, I'm sure there are other agencies involved in the detection and location of some of these, but working with allies and partners has gone around and, re- and removed um, botnets and, and other malware. Uh, I'll caution that, you know, uh, he did not say, nor should anyone assume that we've removed all the malware. And uh, I, my concern would be this is probably still a lot of malware around. So we still need to maintain a, uh, you know, a high level of um, readiness, you know, cybersecurity readiness at our uh, significant national critical infrastructure. Is it um, potentially problematic to make a disclosure like this? Or do you think um, that it is something that is uh, a- appropriate and appropriately reassuring to allies and partners because folks have been sort of on high edge, right, Mark? Um, you know, we've talked uh, talked to you and a number of other people, right? I mean, the, the defenders at some point can exhaust themselves expecting that blow to come. Uh, obviously, that's always the game in, in, in cyberspace. But was, was the disclosure at all problematic from your standpoint? No, the disclosure wasn't because I, I do believe in signaling. Um, and this is a signal, right? It's a signal of U.S. capability and to some degree capacity to do things and our willingness to uh, work with allies and partners to enter, um, you know, compromised networks and, and remove um, uh, mili- cyber, you know, malicious software. So I believe in signaling. And I also am not concerned about the, um, you know, the kind of like uh, increased pressure that's on the defenders right now. And, and here's why. First of all, I would bin companies into two groups. 
there's a group of companies that haven't been investing in cyber resilience for the last two or three years. You know, these security warnings don't mean much to you because there's not much you can do in a couple of weeks or a month, you know, to really appreciably change the cyber resilience of your networks. So, you know, I, I feel for those companies. But for the companies that have made the investments in cybersecurity, these CISA warnings are important and the FBI warnings because they're telling them, hey, take that rheostat that you have between, you know, accessibility and efficiency and, and security and turn it more towards security. And that, that's going to mean it's harder to access things, a little more multi-factor authentication. You know, some people will be eliminated from their ability to look at other networks and servers. That's okay. And we should do that during the time of this crisis with Russia over Ukraine, because at some point, I think Russia will lash out at us. And you don't want to be that company who's, who's overly exposed. So if you have the cybersecurity and you've built that resilience over the last two to three years, take advantage of it. Uh, I remember over the long period of time you and I have been uh, talking, uh, as well as a couple of our uh, other guests, uh, the extraordinary effort in the wake of solar winds and a number of these uh, other uh, intrusions, whether the Microsoft intrusion that involved uh, the Chinese, uh, the extraordinary lengths that we've gone to to try to identify uh, the kinds of malware uh, that, that have been left behind. Let me just ask you kind of a slightly technical question and, and end it there and, and look forward to having you back on to talk a little bit more about this as we understand more. But once, talk a little bit about the taxonomy, right? When you identify a threat, what do you learn uh, from that threat? That's one of the questions that we've also asked uh, Chris uh, in the bottom half of the show, right? How what, Once you figure out what you're looking for, does it make it easier to find more of that? I suspect I know the answer, but want to give you a shot at, at sort of explaining it to our listeners. Sure. I think there's two levels to it. One, there's clearly an advantage in getting the exact signature that was involved in that malicious cyber act, uh, act. You know, So there's some value in that. You can share that with other places to see if they can find the same signature. Um, the second aspect is you can get some tactics, techniques, and procedures used by the adversary to either install that, that malware or develop the malware. And so you can learn about, you know, future or related uh, you know, uh, cyber malicious activity. So you really can learn a lot. And that's why sometimes the intelligence community is slow to reveal the knowledge of a, of a piece of cyber uh, malware because they're studying the tactics, techniques, and procedures used by it. But uh, I'm glad to see that they're, they're working on this. And, um, you know, we, we, we do need to be prepared for, um, for, uh, for malicious activity from Russia. Once we once these once we begin to use what are called, you know the secondary sanctions, and, and I'm really glad we have you know documents like NSPM 13 at the at the you know at the White House allowing the Department of Defense to to create a campaign plan and other federal agencies to, to create campaign plans to get at this uh, you know to, to prepare for uh, Russian malicious activity because without Defend Four you know without these campaign plans without NSPM 13 without a Defend Four strategy. The United States will not be fully capable of dealing with the Russian threat. Uh, and uh, you, uh, you brilliantly anticipated my last question, which was on, and for uh, those in the audience who don't know, NSPM 13 is the National Security Presidential Memorandum uh, 13. Um, tell the audience what it is, why it was so important, and that the Biden administration was looking to alter it, and you're very happy that that alteration didn't happen. Summarize all that. Well, I'll start by saying, you know, NSPM 13 is the um, the guidance that you is the uh, policy guidance inside the White House that allows um, after the development the identification of a potential campaign plan 
you get a general interagency approval, and then the department identified, usually the Department of Defense, can go out and build its own campaign plan to, uh, to deal with, with a problem without having to constantly come back. This is critical in cyber activity because of this, the speed and agility that's needed to deal with an adversary. You can't keep coming back at each step of the way for interagency clearance or, or, G, or White House G, uh, general counsel clearance because you just won't be able to deal with the adversary. Uh, it, was, it was created in law in the fiscal year um, 1998, created the conditions where you could have this kind of uh, guidance. The Trump administration is the one who actually developed it, but it was used effectively by General Nakasone and U.S. Cyber Command in the 20 response to the 2018 and 2020 elections where Russia clearly attempted again to conduct cyber-enabled information operations against our democratic institutions and was much less successful because of it. I think it's been used by both the Trump and Biden administrations appropriately. I do think the Biden administration is looking at it. I hope they see the long-term benefit of not altering or scrapping it so that we can maintain a strong defend forward position. And, uh, you know, so I've been talking in the press and others have too, you know, to make it clear that a rollback on NSPM 13 may lead to a reduction, not just in our capability and capacity in cyberspace, but the credibility of U.S. response. In other words, our signaling of our willingness to do cyber activity, to hold others at risk if they threaten us. Mark, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us. Thank you, Vago. Uh, real pleasure. And a word from our sponsors, GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all domain command and control. While we were at Navy League earlier this week, we caught up with Chris Cleary, a retired United States Navy commander and intelligence officer and cyber expert who is now the United States Navy's principal cyber advisor to discuss how the United States Navy is improving its cybersecurity and what this new budget tells us about where the force is going to improve its security. Here's our conversation with Chris Cleary. Chris, thanks so very much for joining us. Thank you, Vago. Appreciate it being here. Uh, absolute uh, pleasure. Um, obviously, um, the Russo-Ukrainian war is, is still running. Uh, different arms of the U.S. government have given warning. We've heard from uh, everything from the White House to CISA, uh, Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, saying, hey, look, shields up uh, in terms of, of defenses. Talk to us from a Department of Navy, uh, Department of the Navy standpoint. Are you seeing any intrusions? Are you seeing any Russian malicious activity? Uh, and if so, more broadly, what are you guys doing to defend, to put those shields up? Yeah, uh, thanks for the question. So as far as activity we might see on Navy networks right now, stimulated or sponsored by the Russians, we don't see too much of that, or at least it's not attributed that way. Uh, we are prepared for uh, Russian activity should uh, es things escalate and the U.S. gets more and more in the crosshairs. Really on that, on that note, the things that I'm more principally concerned about is the critical infrastructure side to it, the things that the, that the Navy cannot protect uh, specifically. Um, and how we would go about working with critical infrastructure providers, Department of Homeland Security, CISA, uh, 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 if we needed to respond to some of these things, because that's where coordinated efforts would have to come together uh, to ensure that the Navy could continue to meet its its missions based on uh, resource generation from, you know, you know, CONUS, United States, would have to actually be forward deployed. So, and all that infrastructure that enables that is is the piece that I'm concerned about. 
And what are some of the things you're doing to safeguard uh, that infrastructure, right? I mean, we've heard from John uh, Cofrancesco of Fortress uh, Information uh, Security, who's talked to us about, hey, look, you know, there's prioritization, a whole bunch of stuff that you can do to mitigate some of these impacts. What are some of the things you guys are doing from a Department of the Navy standpoint? So, so as the principal cyber advisor, one of the areas I found myself most principally involved in now is in critical infrastructure. So there's a program called Mosaics. It was a JCTD done uh, over the last couple of years. The Navy, for the most part, was the, was the lead uh, organization in rolling that out. We had a really good pro, uh, version of it rolled out in uh, North Island. Um, we're looking at rolling that out as others, other organizations. Um, but this idea of, of critical infrastructure, what we're doing about it, is on the is on the desk of you know with, with the secretary and the undersecretary, um, ASNEINE, uh, NAVFAC, Commander of Naval Installations Commands, uh, which traditionally has not been a huge priority for the Navy. But we are beginning to understand all the critical dependencies that we have, and we're beginning to position resources and 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 transfer. Uh, uh, resources over to those areas to support that stuff. Um, let me ask you a visibility thing, right? Uh, SBOMs, uh, the, the uh, cyber uh, bills to better understand all of the hardware and software components that might be potential vulnerabilities. You and I have talked about this uh, over the years. Um, how comfortable are you that you have that topographic assessment, right? Um, I was on, online coming in uh, to this conference and uh, there was a guy from a commercial uh, computing company and he was saying, look, Lyra Systems, you know, they're Russian owned for God's sakes and, and their software is in a whole variety of different products. And indeed, you know, if you scratch hard enough, you'll find there are still Huawei chips that are in the supply line that are coming. Where do you feel we are right now? Do you fully feel like you've got your hands wrapped around the software and the hardware side of this? And then I've got to follow up on it. Yeah, it would be fair to say that all the services do not have a clear picture of, you know, from stem to stern, what their dependencies are on technologies. You know, you got second and third and fourth and fifth order, you know, levels of providers that have things that they bring into contract. What I can say is the secretary has tasked me with just recently doing a cyber vulnerability assessment of our weapons systems. This would be a fall on to the uh, NDA 1647 uh, initiative that tasked all the services with looking at cyber vulnerability assessments for weapon systems and platforms. Those were completed between 2016, 2018, 2020. We are in the process of rolling out a variety of remediation efforts to that. But when it comes to having a really clear site picture as to what really the vulnerabilities are across the breadth and scope of the Navy and how it Im would impact operations moving forward, we're moving towards a better picture, but we certainly have a lot of work to do to get there. And do you feel that at least your, right, the, the taxonomy, I suppose, of everything that went earlier is a bigger challenge? Do you feel like you've, you're narrowing down and cleaning up those sources of supply so that at least going forward you're mitigating this risk and it's more of sort of a retroactive thing than a forward-looking forward remediation effort? What I will say is programs like FFGX which if you looked at the way we did other acquisitions of whether it be you know, weapon systems or systems of systems, um, there's probably things that need to be cleaned up in those organizations. A program like FFGX, one of the things I can say about that is right out of the gate, ASNR DNA and the program offices and, and, and uh, NAVC has done a, a really good job at looking at putting in cybersecurity right from the keel lay down. So all the survivability metrics, the KPPs that are going into making that ship, you know, survival as a platform, as opposed to backfitting these things, which we so often are, are found doing. But good news is we are backfitting a lot of our systems with cybersecurity programs. Something like FFGX, out of the gate, 
um, has that as, 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 as much of a KPP as, you know, fire suppression, um, anti-ship missile defenses, uh, electronic warfare. Uh, and, and I think where I find comfort is these systems now understand that these things need to be built in from the very, very beginning and not bolted on after the fact. So I think you're seeing this next 10 years of, of innovation and development we're going to be building things that are more secure coming right out of the gate as opposed to bolting things on. But we're in that transition period now. It's the next 10 years you're going to see these things take flight. Um, I, I don't want to over-exaggerate the threat or, or understate it, right? From your standpoint, what's the right way to be thinking about it? How vulnerable are our systems? What are you finding in the course of those software and hardware retrofits? Are you finding vulnerabilities or is this more sort of just looking at the health of the organism as opposed to seeing specific vulnerabilities. How does, how does that break out in your mind? What we're getting better at. So obviously we can identify vulnerabilities in a system, but the words that we're choosing to use now are things like resiliency and survivability. Resiliency typically refers to critical infrastructure. Survivability might be the, the term that we would bring to a weapon system or a platform. So even though we acknowledge the vulnerabilities are going to, there's always going to be a vulnerability in somewhere. You know, can the adversary reach it? What impact does that have to the platform or the mission? And then as we bring, build resiliency into things, it's not necessarily technical resiliency, it's operator resiliency. Do we know how to restore services quickly? Do, you know how, do we know how to operate in a degraded environment? Um, technology is never, correction, technology is not always going to be the answer in how we do these things. There's a lot of workforce things that we have to, that we have to focus on now, and I think you see a lot of attention being brought to that. So outside of the things that you're going to see at Sierra and Space and the way that the defense industrial base is going to provide us tools and capabilities, there's also an onus back on the Department of the Navy to ensure that our personnel are trained. It's every bit as damage control on a, you know, if you're on a surface ship and every, every sailor's a firefighter, well, we've got to begin to transition to that every sailor might have to have some level of information technology, critical infrastructure, operational technology, um, awareness. So if called to respond to a problem, it might be as uh, second nature to put out a fire as it is to push in a circuit breaker. Um, there is a tendency, though, of sort of simplifying this, right? Like looking at any vulnerability as, oh my god, the Chinese can turn off all of our missiles or stop destroyers at pure side or turn off standard missiles, for example, right? Uh, there are misnomers about carriers. Almost everything about the nuclear plant is manual, including the records keeping, right? So you can't, uh, you know, it's a lot more complicated to, you know, there are those who say, like, oh, you could stop a carrier, right? And mm -hmm. it's tracks. It's very unlikely. But, you know, are you how large is that vulnerability in, in your mind, right? I mean, is there an ability to turn weapons off or is it actually a lot more subtle and a lot more complicated before you get to that point for the layperson who may be thinking about some of this as sort of a binary thing, right? That you could like turn off a ship at a pier. Yeah, I think the easy answer is it, 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 nothing's easy. And it's, it's, it's not easy for an adversary to do those things. Actually, some of them are pretty challenging. Um, we do find vulnerabilities in the system, but a lot of those are usually hands-on. You know, you'd have to have physical access to, to a piece of equipment or, or physical access to a ship or an airplane, which obviously is not always the case. It's almost never the case. But it doesn't mean that a ship didn't go into a shipyard availability and somebody put something in it while it was in a shipyard. So now we have to be uh, careful for that, attuned to that. Are we, you know, do we scan a ship looking for RMF emissions that it don't come from traditional uh, emitters that would be you know, designed into the platform? Um, so all those are things that we begin to look at moving forward. It keeps me up at night. There are vulnerabilities associated with critical infrastructure and platforms that, that adversaries could probably figure out a way to get into. Um, 
we're mostly ahead of those in, in most instances and have programs in place to, to mitigate or, or prevent those from happening. Um, but it requires uh, vigilance. I mean, we can't be asleep at the switch. We know this is the way our adversaries are going to want to play with us below this level of armed conflict. So anything that is non-kinetic in nature that doesn't destroy or sink or catch something on fire, it simply questions your ability of its availability when needed. And if you can get that calculus into somebody's head that to say, hey, I'm going to 80% chance of it being ready and 20% not ready, that's a, you know, depending on the mission, 20% might be enough to keep you pure side. And we have to be, again, resilient and survivable. Uh, the term, you know, the secretary is a big uh, on deterrence. Um, there's, a, there's a kinetic deterrence, there's a warfighting deterrence. I'd like to think that in this space, this idea of survivability and resiliency in itself equals a level of deterrence. If I can demonstrate to my adversary that these platforms are as deterrent from a non-kinetic attack, now you're going to have to fight them at sea, and they don't want to do that. So, hey, when called upon, we're going to be ready. We're going to be able to present forces. Now you're going to have to deal with us as opposed to keeping us pure side. Um, and I think that's every bit as, 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 as critical to our strategy moving forward as uh, being able to deliver uh, a kinetic fight. Um, I want to get to the budget in a second. Are you, are you finding either on software and hardware um, I want to say you know penetrations might not be the right uh, term, but how, how is what you're finding shaping how you defend, look, and chart your future course? Great question, and I use solar wind as the, as the perfect example here. What scares us about solar wind is how far upstream that attack happened. You know, signed certificates, validated software came in from the provider. There's not a lot you can do about that. You know, that means every single thing that comes into the Navy has to be reinspected. That takes time, it takes cycles, it takes, it takes uh, resources away from other things. Uh, the vice chief of, of the Navy has a, a, a performed a plan program going on right now. There's a cyber performed a plan going in there, which gets right after this, this idea of how do we uh, more rapidly patch ships when, when software updates are available from vendors and, and all the things we can do to improve and shorten the time frame of taking a piece in something into a program office and actually getting it to the equipment uh, where it lives. But once again, those are the things that keep me up at night. It's not the things that I have 100% positive control over. I'm not as concerned about something that's going to happen inside the skin of, a, of, a, of an Arleigh Burke destroyer or within a Joint Strike Fighter. I'm curious about all the support systems that enable that, whether it's logistics change, whether it's sustainment, whether it's moving fuel around. Those are the things that keep me up at night because a lot of those I can't control. I have, I have dependencies on organizations that don't have the same level of resources to defend those as I might have on a, on a surface ship, and I think our adversaries know that. Um, are you seeing the kind of progress from the infrastructure uh, providers and on the corporate side of things that show you that we're actually making the kind of progress we need to be seeing? I'd like to say yes. In, in industry today, it's in, your, it's in their best interest to provide us the most secure products as they can. It's just, it's, you know, ships float, airplanes don't fall out of the sky, uh, computer systems just shouldn't be delivered with inherent vulnerabilities that you put it back on the owner to say, well, sorry, now this is on you to cover an expense for me to, to fix this. Um, I think industry is beginning to recognize that. I think CMMC is driving industry to understand that there's, there's more and more of a dependency on them to provide good products and services right out of the gate without it having to be necessarily a requirement baked into a, a software to say, hey, this software should be delivered to me without vulnerabilities and there are things you should be doing to protect uh, the things that we and the government are paying for. Uh, so, you know, 
there are a lot of good initiatives moving on. I think all of these take time. They're all tied to money and resources and deliveries. Uh, and those are the, the, you know, the devils in the detail. And I think you saw that when we went from CMMC to kind of a watered down version of CMMC. The basic principles are there, uh, but some of the maybe onerous things are taken out or it got watered down a little bit. Uh, and again, only time will tell. Uh, and I want to get to CMMC in a minute, but let me ask you about the budget. Obviously, uh, there's a 2023 budget submission. Uh, if reports have it correctly, that's been submitted uh, to Congress. I'm not going to ask you about yep. ships. Uh, that's something that uh, uh, Secretary Del Toro is uh, addressing for us or has addressed for us. Um, you know, give us a sense, Chris, from a cyber perspective, right, the department has highlighted the progress that this 23 budget, in some respects, is a watershed budget for its cyber focus. What are some of the things that, from your standpoint, are highlights from a Department of the Navy standpoint? Yeah, so when we look at the, the cyberspace activities budget, and it's, it, it's about 15 to 18 percent of the overall IT budget that, uh, that Aaron Weiss is responsible for. So within there, cyberspace activities are defined as uh, cybersecurity, cyber operations, and cyber R&D. In there, it's somewhere south of about $2 billion that gets broken up in those three fundamental areas. We're doing a really good job resourcing things, traditional cybersecurity, and I, and I, I would give the services high marks particularly in the way we responded to things like SolarWinds. Yes, it came, it swam upstream, but when we found out about it, we responded to it very, very quickly. We have to work at resourcing uh, weapons system security and critical infrastructure better. That is, that is, that is something that uh, the, the, the dollars are showing up. There, there is um, money being resourced for that. But traditionally, uh, you know, those have not been seen as high of a priority as building a Columbia-class submarine or a Ford-class aircraft carrier. The good news is now is I think the secretary, the, 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 the commandant, the, the, the CNO are all aware of, and the CNO made the comments just a couple hours ago, it's not about having a lot of things. It's about having the things that I have adequately manned, trained, resourced, secured. You know, I could go on and on and on. Um, and I think they're going to bring more and more attention to ensure the things that we do have are survivable, they have the right manning and training um, and resourcing as opposed to making maybe too many things that we can't uh, sustain. You, uh, I want to get to training um, in, in a minute, um, but just to follow up on, on CMMC, uh, you know, basically um, do that home inspection kind of across the cyber infrastructure uh, to at least know where you stand and where you know, how secure folks are across the defense industrial base. Uh, as you said, right, we started strong under Katie Arrington. We've ebbed a little bit. The new administration took a look at it. And now Aaron Weiss is the person uh, as the DOD CIO who's, who's focused on that. What does that mean for each of the services and the implementation? Uh, you know, I know, I know you're not the CMMC guy for the department, but, you know, sort of the sense on, on where we are in trying to improve the security across uh, the industrial base. So I guess the short answer is we are all supportive of the CMMC construct. Um, you know, like anything else, it was a good idea. It took a long time to get it to get implemented. Lots of players came to the space to say, "Hey, we are supportive of this, and we'll be the CMMC certifiers to go to industry and help them and help them get to where they need to be." Um, obviously, it's taken a little bit of a step back, and it's gotten watered down a little bit. You know. I, Collectively, or, or you know, you know, on the surface, I'm a fan of CMMC. I, I understand what it's designed to go do. I think execution and implementation of it is really where the devil's in the details. You know, again, a fan, but I think time is really going to tell on the on the CMMC and its its uh, success. 
Uh, you are a uh, retired uh, naval officer. You retired as a commander. Uh, you started uh, as in the surface force. Uh, you became an intelligence officer. Uh, we saw one of your old commanding officers at uh, ACU-2, Assault Craft Unit 2, uh, down in uh, sunny uh, Little Creek, uh, Virginia. Um, and you're a graduate of the United States Naval Academy. How do we need to change the curriculum from sailors to flag officers? Because as you said earlier in your comments, Cyber is an integral warfighting domain, and folks need to understand that domain, which is all around them, uh, as air is, yeah. right? And we have entirely too many uh, flag officers, without being critical, who have an understanding of their warfighting specialties and classical warfighting specialties without having as deep a functional understanding of cyber. How do we need to be changing the whole educational construct to make sure that everybody, as you said, Right, if you're a sailor, you're a firefighter. If you're a sailor, you also have to have a degree of cyber literacy, education, and capability. So the good news is it's happening. You know, if you use the Naval Academy as an example, um, there are two classes that all midshipmen are now required to take. There's a freshman and a junior cybersecurity class that just like when I was there, everybody required to take two semesters of electrical engineering and chemistry and calculus. Now there are cyber classes baked into that. There's a whole curriculum. As a matter of fact, I think the Naval Academy right now, the cyber operations major is the most popular major at the Naval Academy. We have the cyber center. So, there, so from the, the, the new workforce coming in, it's, it's getting good. And then of course you got all the digital natives that are coming in the Navy right out of the gate and how to use their cell phones and Twitter and Snapchat and you know, are much more proficient with this technology than anybody wearing eagles or stars on their collar is right now. But we are going through a transition, and that transition is, there's a good book, I will, I, I, the author's name escapes me, but it's Learning War. And basically in the early 1900s, the Navy went through a very similar learning curve, which were, which were engineers and deck officers were two separate career paths. And the Navy realized that being an effective deck officer, you had to have an understanding of your, of your power plants. And over time, that became, they just merged them together. And surface warfare officers yet are engineers, but they're deck officers, and that's a, a skill set everybody needed to have. I think we're going through a very similar transition right now when it comes to information technology, space, cyber, artificial intelligence, autonomous systems. That that can't be seen as we've got line officers over here that understand steam plants and gas turbines and you know, nuclear plants and, and can drive the ship and somebody else is going to do all my cyber and my IT. It That way now, although the Chief of Naval Operations has made cyber commanders business, um, that order was put out a little over a year ago, year and a half ago, but it takes time. And I think we're going to see through the service academies, through basic officer courses, through surface warfare school, that there are going to be requirements for cyber brought into a commanding officer. And a commanding officer can't just say, hey, there's a cyber problem, you got to go talk to my six, or you got to go talk to the combat systems officer. No, hey, Skipper, that's as much your responsibility as it is his, but it is going to take a time to build an officer and a uh, uh, a chief's mess and an, an enlisted cadre that understand that and, and it's and it's every bit as part of their DNA makeup as firefighting is uh, to anybody that's on a surface ship. Thanks so much for spending so much time with us uh, and hope you have a, a great show in Fairwinds following seas and doing one of the hardest jobs in the Navy. Yeah. Thank you, Vog. I really appreciate it.